So, thank you very much and good day to everybody and welcome to uh, Guernsey Sustainable Finance Week, the role of private capital in financing sustainability in the post-COVID era. And today it's the uh, first of our podcasts with a stalwart of the sustainable finance uh, movement, Stephen Nolan, Managing Director of the United Nations FC4S. Um, and it's incredible to, for you to be here with this, this uh, uh, today, Stephen. Um, you know, it's been giving you the perspective from you know, both the UNEP, but also from, from Ireland, where you, you, originally, uh, you originally hail. Um, but to give us the, sort of the global uh, perspective um, on, on the uh, top, topic of the week. Um, so, thank you very much, and good day to you, Stephen. Andy, delighted to be with you, and thank you for including FC Fress in this important week. We really appreciate it, and we're delighted to support uh, Guernsey as a very important member of the FC Fress. Network. And frankly, Stephen, you'd be remiss. I say we've been honoured to be and to be members since uh, 2019 now, and it's it's an amazing movement that um, you put together. So, Stephen, you appreciate that the uh, the topic of the, the theme for the week is the role of private capital in finance and sustainability. And obviously, in the in the Guernsey sense, we when we talk about private capital, we do mean private capital, private wealth, uh, and pr- private wealth and private equity, private capital. Now, obviously, um, it's been a tumultuous two or three months. Um, but let's just sort of start the week and just take a step back and go, look, beginning of the year, we'd just come into 2020 on the back of 2019. 2019 was well, you know, an amazing year. You know, if you, if you go back now, you look at Extinction Rebellion, Greta Thunberg, um, you know, David Attenborough at Davos. And in this January, we even had uh, the, the, the British's, uh, the UK's very own Prince Charles in um, Davos, you know, talking about sustainability. So before we get on to the impact of of COVID-19 on on things, can we maybe take a step back and from your perspective, talk about what the three key themes or takeaways or issues that you you took from 2019 coming into 2020 before COVID-19 hit? Okay, well, thanks, Andy. Yeah, look, Andy, when, the, way, the way you describe it, it was an incredible period, right, for sustainable finance. And it's amazing when, when you talk to people who are only new to the area, they feel, oh, this has come around very quickly. This has all happened very quickly in a few short years. But like yourself, Andy, and Guernsey and other financial centers, you know, leading financial centers have been working on the green and sustainable finance agenda for six, seven, eight years, or not slightly longer as we worked to mainstream and green the financial system. So I suppose coming in off the back of Q4 2019 into Q1 2020, I was very bullish uh, around the agenda. We were seeing at a global level nearly 500 policies from different jurisdictions around the world uh, about the green and sustainable finance agenda and how the agenda could be mainstreamed into the financial services sector in general. We were seeing more and more funds uh, with the ESG integration being launched and more capital going into those funds. We were seeing at a European level the, the development and the implementation of the first action plan for finance and sustainable growth on the activities of the EU technical expert group on sustainable finance. So there was a real uh, bullish sense to where sustainable finance was going, the role of sustainable finance, and as you point out from Greta Thunberg, extinction and so on and so forth, there was also very much a significant increase in the general public's awareness around the green agenda. So both those things were converging uh, at the same time, which is super, but a huge amount of work had gone in by many people in advance of that to get to that point where we could actually talk about sustainable finance and use in the same sentence the word mainstreaming. Uh, And that was actually finishing off the year. It was a very positive one from a UN financial centers for sustainability perspective. We finished the year with 30 partners. 
you were at the AGM in Geneva, an incredible energy, incredible momentum of all the members, including yourself, Andy, in the room. And so coming into Q1, under pretty clear instructions from the members to build on the platform we had developed over the previous year, uh, to build on the fact that with the UN support, 30 financial centers have come together across Asia, Africa, Europe, the Americas, the Gulf, to work together on the sustainable finance agenda and to accelerate the mainstream of that within their own centers and to share best practice and to work with one another and to collaborate with one another to keep pushing this agenda. So for me, as I said, Andy, very, very bullish, very confident about the agenda coming into Q1. And from our perspective of, as FC4S, our whole, uh, um, uh, what we were trying to achieve in Q1 was, and as per the AGM, was to go deeper at a regional level. So, for example, we were meant to be in Beijing on the 22nd of February with the, the People's Bank in China at the Network for Green the Financial System around an event which we were going to be hosting a panel as Beijing itself as a financial center explored what it could do in the green finance space. We were obviously meant to be with yourself, Andy, in Brussels on the 12th of March with the Commission. Uh, as they uh, launched the consultation process around the second action plan for financing uh, green uh, finance and sustainable growth in Europe. And then we were meant to be in Cairo with our partners there on the 26th of March with our African FC4S members as we went deeper into the African plan. And then in April into the Americas across Toronto, New York, and Mexico City. So all those those uh, sessions were obviously had to be postponed and rescheduled. Uh, so that's kind of what we were looking at doing, Andy, in the first quarter was going deeper on a regional level. So, Stephen, it's been a tumultuous time over the last few months. Obviously, we've all been hunkered down in terms of you know, in our own organisations responding to the crisis. Um, as the MD of FC4S, clearly, you know, we were going into this. I think I remember the lockdown. Um, we were going to be at the, uh, the Brussels Taxonomy event, this, the second annual sustainable finance, uh, and that didn't happen. It was one of the first um, calendar things to go. Um, in terms of the response and learning from that, obviously, you've had the report uh, one of the first organisations to produce some analysis, uh, you know, a global assessment of, 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 of uh, financial institutions' response to the crisis. Have you, you know, anything else that you, in terms of that you've been looking and uh, you've been doing that um, you know, probably I haven't been aware of? Andy, uh, and thanks, Andy, for asking the question. I think Andy, from our perspective, is coming out of what was a very, very successful. 2018-2019, and as we discussed at our AGM in, in Geneva like in Q4 last year, we have built, and FC Fresh have built a very strong platform on a global level of 30 members across Europe, Africa, Asia, the Gulf, the Americas, and we're having very much uh, an impact within our dialogues with with uh, global policymakers and global regulators and, and actors in the market. And so we came into 2020 with a very strong wind in our backs and the real focus for myself and the team in, 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 in the first Q1 and Q2 of this year was to focus on really going deeper at a regional level and working with our members at a regional level to help them accelerate what they were trying to do uh, uh, regionally and locally around the sustainable finance agenda. You know, in, across February into March, we had our Asian regional meeting set up in Beijing. We had our European regional meeting set up in Brussels and we had our African regional meeting set up Cairo and then into Toronto, Mexico City, and New York City for, for the Americas. Unfortunately, none of them happened as we all went into lockdown. But what has been incredible, Andy, and, and thank you for highlighting, we were the first to market with a paper around COVID-19 and the implications on a global level for sustainable finance. So in the last number of months, we put a significant effort into trying to understand that agenda, as, uh, as we discussed. And I think that's been very impactful and helpful for our members. 
And then I'm really proud, uh, the team that I'm proud to be part of in terms of Secretariat, the productivity rates, Andy, have shot up as everybody has really responded to this challenge. And the challenge being sustainable finance, green finance, the ESG agenda is going to be core to a recovery post-pandemic. And we need to continue to make that argument in a fact-based, data-driven way to the policymakers, the regulators, and the participants in those markets, and to give you, as a leader within your financial center and a member of FCFRS, the, the data, the ammunition, those points to allow you to make them at a regional and a, and a national level. Because from our perspective, sustainable finance, the sustainability agenda, the UN SDGs and achievement of them are going to be key to ensure that we come out of this pandemic in a robust way and actually rebuild our economies from a resilient perspective. Sustainable finance is going to be key in that. So for the last, since we've gone into lockdown, that has been a significant part of our focus. And I'm very proud that we've contributed to that dialogue at a global level and at a regional and a national level in a very meaningful way. And that's why I said I was delighted that we were the first out to market with the analysis. We will build on our initial working paper with a second piece in July, and then we'll do a final report in November after the FC for S AGM. And I think from my perspective, Andy, and from you as a member, COVID-19 and the implications of sustainable finance is going to be a key work stream for us uh, this year. And it's going to prove our work not just to you as members, but to the global financial services system. Indeed. So, Stephen, I mean, that, 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 was, that was then, mm-hmm. uh, and obviously this is now. And in fact, I remember um, you stewarded the very first UNFC for report, which was uh, entitled Shifting Gears, which is very apt to the, to the, uh, the agenda that you just described there. Um, but that, that was then, and we, we've been through uh, quite a tumultuous period. Um, in terms of the greenness of the recovery, in terms of you talk about the global policymakers, from, from your perspective, and I've been through the, the five stages of grief with, with the emotional response since, since it all kicked off, and I've very much come out of it, come out of it now, and, and, and know where I am personally, mentally. But um, you know, in terms of globally, from the from your position to be able to sort of give, you know give that perspective from Africa, from from, from Far East Asia, and from the US, etc. Do you do you have concerns about the economic stimulus packages being being greened? I mean, uh, the IPCC sort of predicts that you know these these wealth events or these events will become more climate events become more and more um, um, uh, frequent. Um, you know, if we invest in a carbon future, or if we, you know, if we don't prepare ourselves for the next round of future systemic crisis, um, we're all going to have problems. Do you, do you, do you see any sort of um, eroding of the commitment to that, or you know, is there a pressure? Do you see globally to relax what was a commitment to, to greening mm-hmm. uh, the economy? You know, given the urgent need for stimulus. A really good question, Andy. And uh, from my perspective, you know, the last number of months I've had numerous phone calls with policymakers, regulators, and private sector actors in this space. And I think a key message I've taken away is that they are going to be doubling down on the climate action agenda and ensuring that sustainable finance actually accelerates in terms of the mainstreaming into the capital markets. And that's a message that I'm seeing across, as I said, from central banks, from insurance supervisors, from large financial institutions, banks, insurance, asset managers. And so that's a very clear message to me. And I think, Andy, from my perspective, you look, as somebody said to me recently, the 2008 was uh, crisis was one made within the financial sector. When you look at COVID, it's a physical shock. It's a physical shock. And we've seen how quickly that has upended our world in the last number of months. So if when you look at climate, that's also a physical shock. 
And I think what a lot of people are taking away from this tragic period we're going through right now, look how quickly this happened. Climate is unfolding, and we can see that in our eyes in terms of climate challenge. It will take longer than COVID, but relatively speaking, it's still a short-term shock and a short-term risk to the system. Uh, and so, Andy, I think, you know, if people weren't uh, fully on board with the climate action agenda and the role of the capital markets and green in the financial system pre-COVID, I think a takeaway from me, based on research and an FC Fresh COVID-19 paper we did, is that there's going to be a surge in this agenda going forward. That's the first point. In terms of the second point around stimulus, you just have to look at what the European Commission came out with last week and where they want to go and the funds that they're now putting into their stimulus package. And at the core of that is the role of sustainable finance. And Andy, you were good enough to join a call recently with the head of sustainable finance from the European Commission, DG FISMA, and you hear from him that the green agenda is going to be at the heart of Europe's recovery and sustainable finance is going to be at the heart of supporting that. So my answer is, I think we're going to see a lot of activity going on within the green space. Uh, and uh, from a stimulus perspective, if I then bring that down to a nation, the one that I'm most uh, au fait with is, is obviously my home country, Ireland, and I've been here the last few months. The Irish state has had to invest $30 billion in its response to COVID and keeping the economy afloat and the healthcare system like other countries. Uh, and I think the key thing there is it itself also has to meet EU targets going forward. It itself has positioned itself as a sustainable finance hub and a low-carbon economy. And it is going to require a lot of private capital to, to meet its own ambitions as part of the wider EU. And so going back to my point of a policy and regulatory makers, you have to see now the enabling policies put in place to allow that capital to crowd in on top of public capital. And I'm going to see that. I, I believe that it's going to be very strong conversions in the coming months and years. That's good. That's a good point. I mean, you touched on it. Um, you, you, you just mentioned it, but an early, an early paper I read about um, from McKinsey's was very insightful. Uh, it was suggesting what we needed to do was look at um, our current responses to the crisis and see what we could learn from that. You know, in terms of what can we learn from what are the implications of our response to the pandemic for our response to, to climate change. And do you have any particular perspective on the views on that? What lessons that we can learn from the response to the crisis that can be embedded into our response to, to climate change? Yeah, that's a really good point again, Andy. And I think the key takeaway for me is collaboration, okay? Um, you know, where we have seen responses work very effectively at a national to a regional to a global level in terms of our pandemic response has been around that, that collaboration perspective. And from a sustainable finance agenda, and you just have to look at the UN Environment Financial Centers for Sustainability and our 30 members, you look at the network for green and financial system, and I think it's got, that's the central bankers network, I think of 60 uh, central banks around the world. You look at the sustainable insurance form of 31 uh, insurance supervisors, including Guernsey, and you're actually seeing within all those networks, everybody is collaborating very, very strongly. Uh, the Coalition of Finance Ministers Climate Action as well are collaborating very strongly on how do we now, mindful of what we've just gone through, how do we actually accelerate the accelerators within the sustainable finance agenda? So if there's anything I'm taking away, where I've seen work in the pandemic, uh, and I'm not a health expert, obviously, but our, the things we've seen on the news, which have been around collaboration, and then when you look into the sustainable finance agenda, and a lot of things we've been involved in in the last several months since the lockdown is, on calls with the NGVS, with the Sustainable Insurance Forum, with the Coalition of Finance Ministers, and actually all talking to one another, how can we collaborate in a greater way going forward to ensure that we accelerate the accelerators in the Sustainable Finance Agenda? So that's a key takeaway for me, Andy, and I think the UN has got a key role within that. 
That's a good point. I mean, it's very particularly given um, the geopolitics of, of today. It's, uh, I think it's a good it's good to remember that collaboration is, is key on this. And certainly, from our perspective, we've we've learned so much from you know working with others, with other you know, with yourselves and, and other members uh, of, of FC4S. Um, in terms of that, so if if that's um, some pertinent and relevant, say, to policymakers and, and, and those sort of economic actors, in in a slightly different perspective. What's your, what have you been hearing about um, what, in terms of the response of institutions and investors themselves? Um, have you seen, you know, I suppose it's what, the John F. Kennedy moment, but what, what do you think that investors uh, and owners of wealth should be doing to align their individual response um, with, you know, to align their response to the pandemic with sustainability? Or, you know, are we talking, are we biting off too much we can chew here, trying to, trying to, um, achieve too many objectives at once. But uh, is it, do you have any words of advice for for, for investors and owners of capital? Sure. I think, Andy, and maybe you may view it as a very basic point, but I've had a lot of calls with major asset managers and, and pension funds over the last number of months to get my perspective uh, on the ESG agenda and what next. And, you know, it keeps going back to, t- to two points. One is around capacity building or the skills or the talent within these firms on this topic. Yeah. And Andy, you know, you and I know we go into these big firms on a regular basis. And in the last 18 months, we're now meeting head of sustainable finance, a head of response investment. Whereas in previous times, it may have been a person with this uh, work agenda tagged on to their other daily work life. Um, and so I think the firms that are very much forward-looking and are really embracing the sustainable finance and ESG agenda for the last number of years have been really integrating this agenda into everything they do from a firm in terms of their own carbon footprint as a firm to actually when they go out for tender, they want to understand the credentials of the people tendering to provide services to them. When they're going out and responding to tenders, say from large assets owners, they have to be able to say, you know, what, where are you in the sustainability agenda? What are you doing in a meaningful way not from a CSR perspective. Um, and so a lot of these firms have the ones that are very forward-looking, that have done very well in the last number of months that have really integrated ESG into the agenda, have built within their organizations from the C-suite down, uh, including the board, a capability and an understanding and a talent around the sustainable finance agenda. On the flip side, we're seeing a lot of firms that maybe have been coming to the agenda slightly after those, those, those uh, first movers and I think there's a genuine war for talent going on at the moment, Andy, within uh, these financial institutions for people who actually understand the sustainability agenda, understand the climate action agenda, understand the, the social uh, issues within the ESG agenda, understand how policies are formed or what regulators may be doing, and can then integrate that with their colleagues into the products and services that these firms then offer. So I think the key thing, Andy, what we're seeing there is uh, from my perspective and the takeaway is that, that that war for talent around sustainable finance and the first thing with these firms are starting is how do they bring in new talent and then how do they update uh, the skills of their existing staff. So that's a, a key takeaway that, I, that I'm picking up from these firms. The second one is around the innovation agenda. Um, within that, firms looking to say, well, actually, you know, do we need to create new products? Can we update existing products? around this, that, that, that lean into the sustainable finance and ESG agenda. So again, a lot of these firms are going through a process where they're exploring what they actually have in terms of products and services and trying to update and integrate 
the ESG and sustainable finance agenda into them. Again, that goes back to, to talent and access to talent to assist at a company level or professional advisors around that. And then I think, Andy, the third point is, again, going back to this point, right now there is a sense of collaboration uh, among these firms that are normally competitors as well, but they are sharing best practice. They are sharing things they've come across from a client perspective of how you could do something in, in a more meaningful way. So I'm seeing talent, I'm seeing innovation, I'm seeing collaboration, Andy, from a lot of the firms I'm talking to that are very big firms in terms of what they manage, what they own, what they invest in from banks, insurance, et cetera. Uh, with regard to the sustainable finance agenda. So I'm actually quite, I'm quite excited by that uh, because, you know, my final point, Andy, is there aren't a lot of people, relatively speaking, globally, who you could call a genuine sustainable finance expert. And so it's great to see now that on the back of the shoulders of those experts, I see over the next number of years, there's going to be deep investment in the industry to develop more talent and innovation in this space. Really good point that you made about ESG there, Stephen. Um, Really is the crisis. There's so much talk about ESG providing or ESG aligned investments made better returns. And some even in, you know, during the crisis, there was some HSB research and the, U, the UNFC4S research also you know, highlighted this issue. Um, but some of those people, some other researchers said, well, you know, right now, uh, the, the need is, is for elsewhere you know, in terms of priorities for, for my capital. What do you think the, your, the view is of the, the continued investor demand for, for sustainable and green finance? Um, specifically with couching that return perspective. A really good point, Andy, because at the end of the day, we're not talking about philanthropy here. We're not talking about corporate social responsibility. We are talking about a functional capital market and everything within that, invested in opportunities that actually give a good return. And, you know, we have to ask where, where are those returns gone? Yes, private wealth, but a huge amount of those returns are built uh, around pensioners and pension funds. And how do we actually fund retirements and how do we, save for future uh, retirement. So you have to do look at this through the lens of, of returns, as you point out. And I suppose in the early days of green finance, you know, you saw renewables, you, you saw wind, you saw solar. But a lot of people thought, well, that's that, that, that green stuff. Uh, you know, how big is that? And I think one of the key things, Andy, that we see is when we talk about the trillions and the trillions we need to decarbonize uh, to you know, really, really support climate action over the coming decades. It is in the trillions. It's in the tens of trillions. But we also sometimes, when you read maybe media pieces on this agenda, hundreds of billions has already been invested to date. And like any market, there's been winners and losers. But in the main, there's been you know excellent returns, solid returns on those investments. Uh, and so you're looking at a space where you're not actually going back to people and saying, oh, this is a new opportunity. We're starting afresh. Just look at how many, you know, how many tens of billions, hundreds of billions have been invested in green bonds. Yes, it is still incredibly small in the overall bond market at a global level, but look at the, the pace of growth over the last number of years. So, you know, in answer to the question, Andy, I do believe in your sophomore cover paper. Initially, there was a kind of a stalling. There was a sense would this, you know, really impact on the green and sustainable finance agenda. People are talking about the, you know, oil and gas would just disappeared. The prices went so low. The markets have kind of balanced out a little bit more since then. And again, going back to my earlier question, if you look at how much money Europe now needs to invest in stimulus, you know, the, 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 the amount in other jurisdictions like China and elsewhere, the state can only invest X percent of that. They need private capital, and the private capital will only come in on the basis of a good return over X decades. And in order to entice that private capital in, the states need to develop, as in the countries and nation states, have to develop supporting and enabling policy environments 
and then the regulators on the far side as well. So there's a huge interest, Andy. I think, again, going back to the research and the calls I've had over the previous months, you know, there is a pent-up demand to put capital to work in support the climate action agenda and that broader ESG agenda. The challenge right now is there aren't enough shovel-ready infrastructure products or infrastructure projects globally ready to take that capital. And again, part of that is we need to make sure at a policy perspective that, you know, renewable energy, solar, the greening of buildings, uh, trains, cars, electric cars, et cetera, et cetera, are accelerated in terms of, of, of the policy agenda. So in summary, Andy, we've never seen so much private capital in the world as we now see in today, despite COVID. We are seeing that this shock, this physical shock that COVID has brought to the system, the policy, the regulators, society, capital markets, the economy in general, is a real wow Look how bad this was. This is tragic. Look how many people have died. Climate is going to be bigger than this. The climate agenda is going to be bigger than this in terms of a, of a shock to the system and, and a risk perspective. So I do, again, Andy, really feel that the board level, the C-suite, the head of strategy in these major firms are looking at this and saying, okay, we need to go further and deeper with the ESG agenda now. And then from a government perspective, going back to your earlier question, the stimulus has to be green, and then you converge that demand from, I want to get capital out the door, to, I'm a government and I need capital. And there's a very good conversions right now because, you know, ESG, uh, the firms that have integrated ESG from an asset management perspective, whatever it may be, of, we've seen have, have better returns or lower losses uh, in, in this period as we've gone through COVID. So we are seeing that correlation, Andy. I didn't say you don't have... You know, any concerns that, that you know, maybe you know, if, if before, I mean, we go back to um, summer last year, I think it was, and we conducted our own research amongst some family offices that sort of said, you know, are you looking at increasing your exposure to the sustainable and the green finance asset class? And uh, there's a you know, significant group, there's about 12, I think 25 billion of uh, family office money that was represented in the survey. And um, yeah, 51%, yeah, we're, we're looking at you know, increasing our exposure to the asset class. And then it's like, well, that's Great news. Um, well, how about the other 49%? And they were, well, not so much. Uh, despite all of the, the you know, the, sort of the, the circus, the rhetoric and everything like that, they were still unconvinced of the returns of the asset class and concerned about the robustness of, of, of the product. Now, you know, you've, you've touched on it, you're talking about China and others with, with the need. Do you see, do you see any um, sort of... Uh, do you see any sort of like changing sentiment um, sort of from this year to last? And do you see any um, difference in the, in the, in the, in the views of, um, from different regions across the globe? Or, you know, in terms of, you know, with, with your perspective at FC4S, being able to sort of um, take the perspective from China and compare it with regards to the European Union, where the European Union's plans are clearly, um, you know, greenness of the recovery is, is front and centre. Um, do you get any sense of different uh, of different perspectives of, of the returns um, from from um, the economics of, of private finance in, in the in that respect? Sure. Uh, again, a really good question. It's again, I, I'm not on the transaction side, so I'm not sitting in the rooms about the actual deals themselves, and, and you know, do we or don't we? But I, I do really feel, Andy, that the let's just keep that that ESG agenda is going to become way more mainstream now than it was previously. And, you know, it was getting there fast, right? So I, I, I feel that the ESG, if you look at it from, even from the basis of a, a risk management perspective, yeah, 
uh, I really feel that the firms that maybe were, were, were working to integrate ESG into what they do will now do that in a more accelerated fashion. That's one. And then also when you look at the private wealth and those family offices and as that wealth passes on to, to, to the next generation and where, you know, you go back to, as I said earlier on, the Greta Thunberg effect, you know, we, we are now living in a point where people are far more educated about future risks, including climate, climate change. Uh, we've, we're, we are living right now through a pandemic at a global level and seeing the impact of that. So if you're in a family office and you're looking at that from a risk perspective or an opportunity perspective, and you're hearing a lot about the green stimulus and where's the money going to go and, and how can we actually, you know, try and work to, to push back on, on what we're seeing right now. And you see the whole link of biodiversity to COVID and the cutting down of forests and so on and so forth. You know, if you're sitting there from a risk or an opportunity perspective, you are seeing this agenda front and center. That's one. Two, uh, as more and more firms look to integrate ESG into what to do in a more meaningful way, those firms, as I said earlier, will begin to invest in talent. That talent will actually know in the sense of what are the new products and services or the, the upgrade of existing products we can actually bring to our clients. So maybe we'll see a plethora of new products hit the market. And then the third one is around that innovation for winning those firms as well. So, you know, Andy, it's not going to happen overnight. Uh, as we both know, you know, we've been in this agenda for a while now, but I think the, the, the mood noise in the background is ESG was already being mainstreamed. It's going to surge now from my perspective. The challenge that's going to hold it back is the lack of shovel-ready infrastructure projects around the world to invest in. And then secondly, do the big firms have the talent in place to work with their clients, for example, in these family offices, to make them more comfortable about this agenda? And then also saying, here's a product we developed or an existing product where you can put your funding into and this is the type of return you're going to get from that. So that's, without being involved in those transactions, that's my best response to that, Andy. I think that's a good point. And you've touched on something that's of, as, you know, maybe it was thinking out, a bit of me thinking out loud here, but um, you mentioned ESG a couple of times. We talked to Green, the sustainable finance agenda. There's a sort of a, a real smorgasbord of terminology here. And certainly, you know, different things mean different things to different people. Um, do, you, do you sense a difference in the, the views towards uh, people investing in ESG aligned investments? And specifically about green finance projects, um, because you know you've talked about shovel-ready um, projects, and that clearly is a, a terminology that re- presumably you know, my, my 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 take is that refers to projects that are going to be invested in the, in the, the carbon carbon reduction agenda. But there's a, a slight distinction between that and ensuring that you know in terms of the the overall environmental, social, and governance approach to investing um, that that there's, there's, there's sort of same. Uh, same book, but slightly different chapters, as it were. Do you, do you sense a, 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 any difference in the commitment to either, or is this um, post-COVID you're seeing, you know, generally, um, you know, an overall increase in the commitment across the piece to all types of sustainable investing? Well, let's, let's unpack that. And, and, as you said, Andy, there's the infrastructure piece, and then there's, as you said, the broader ESG. So if you look at the infrastructure piece, you know, right now, if you come out with a large uh, infrastructure project, one assumes that in today's world, from a climate perspective, the resilience is going to be built into that in the planning stage. Yeah. And, you know, it's not just renewables, wind, solar, wave, tidal, you know, energy efficiency at the home level, transport. We, we know what that big infrastructure piece lends itself to and the, and the trillions required to go into that new uh, development of the upgrading of existing infrastructure or developing new. So from, from my perspective, when you look at that now, 
one assumes that that resilience piece is built in already. And so as part of the investment portfolio, you, uh, you may not be deliberately invested in, say, a green project, Andy, but your project has got the resilience from a climate action, climate change perspective built into it. Okay? So that's kind of the first point. And, and then you, as you rightly point out, Andy, there's significant number of firms around the world, you know, very, very large firms that manage trillions of assets that invest in these large infrastructure projects down to small local asset managers and also the same and infrastructure and project finance and investment and equity. That's what they do. And they do it incredibly well. And they normally get good returns out of that. And what's interesting is you're seeing more and more pension funds invest directly into those infrastructure projects, for example, around renewables or worker partners around that. So that's a, that's a good change from X decades ago when it was tough to get capital for these projects. With regard to the, the, the second point, Andy, around the, the ESG, and a really, really good point, Andy, because one of the key things that I had struggled with over the, the previous years is, and actually uh, from an FC Fresh perspective, you as a member and others, you know, very clearly said to the, the Secretariat last year, this is great, it's climate focused, but can we go beyond climate? Can we build on what we're doing in climate into, a, into the broader agenda? And I think what we've seen during COVID, Andy, has been a real uh, understanding of the S, the social piece within ESG. Uh, if you look around the world, you know, the lack of access to healthcare systems, underinvestment in healthcare systems, the inequality around who has access to those healthcare systems. You know, you look at some countries in the developing world that actually between them have got, you know, ventilators in the single digits. Uh, whereas other more developed countries have got more. So that whole social piece and the ESG, within the ESG and back to, I suppose, the wider UN, the Sustainable Development Goals of which there are seven, you're right, Andy, it's not all just about climate action. There are other priorities within that as well. And I think, Andy, from my perspective, you're seeing those big asset management firms now look through the lens of not just climate, but the broader SDG family to see what types of products and services can they develop that, you know, from impact investment perspective that their clients may be interested in investing in or partner with them on to develop. And I think Andy, that's a really good point. Uh, we saw pre-COVID, there was more and more products coming to the marketplace from those bigger firms that were SDG linked. I think now, again, going back to my discussion over the last number of weeks, I think we're going to see more of those products come out, which are the broader SDGs or even specifically around healthcare, for example. Important. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point about that, sort of the, the, the widening out of the, of the product spectrum there. I mean, actually, in my notes, I think at this point, I was about to ask you about um, the old hashtag build back better about you know, uh, the need for sustainable recovery and, and to make you know, um, you know, fundamental sustainable change uh, and ask you about the role of private capital in that. I think, quite frankly, you pr you've probably, you know, you've preempted me there in terms of your response to the previous question. Um, and and you've mentioned it earlier, you know, in our conversation, talking about the risk uh, of, 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 of position for private capital, and then the fact that private capital is, you know, in the scale of it, you know, compared to public, is going to be needed to to, to finance the recovery. Um, so I, I'm not going to, I'm going, you know, to go into that point, even if my notes do say, oh, I'll ask Stephen about this point at this juncture. But what I will do is, I'd like to actually. Um, uh, to move to, to take a step sideways and, and ask you about um, uh, sort of the role of it. You know, you, you talked about collaboration before, but the, the role of international standards and technology taxonomies. It, it's, you twig about the fact that the SDGs. They've also got the twenty-one 
um, uh, different goals from the United Nations. And I've seen various different frameworks about how you measure, uh, you know, your, your impact against that, uh, and in, in terms of um, you know, various different metrics and such, is a bit more complicated than the old simple return on capital and you know, shareholder return type model of. Uh, well, you know, traditional capitalism, as it were. Do you see um, this whole area, this sort of mushrooming of different standards and, uh, and frameworks and reporting and regulations as, as, as potential for hindering um, sort of the, you know, the, the, the cause? Or do you, do, you, do you more optimistic that we can uh, find ourselves more to, to a, 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 simple, a simple path? Sure. Um, I, I think, Andy, and it's a really good point because, as you said, we are seeing a lot of these different standards and other items pop up. And sometimes, I don't know how you feel about it, Andy, but sometimes I, I feel like I'm almost in the role of a therapist talking to people about this, this agenda because they're sometimes pulling their hair out and saying, well, this new initiative has been launched and there's this, this standard and I'm an asset manager and yes, we may manage X hundreds of billions or in the trillions or whatever the, the size of that firm is, which one do we sign up to? Yeah, um, And then you talk to some of the bigger firms and you suddenly realize that they've got a staff of five or six people permanently uh, working within the firm on we're a member of this standard, we've just joined this initiative. And one particular firm I was talking to recently, a large UK bank, when they did an analysis when a new CEO came in, they realized they were involved in just under 25 different initiatives around sustainable finance. And they kind of said, wow. And so they went through a process of saying, well, actually, which ones of those are really meaningful from a standard perspective and are recognized in the marketplace? Which ones are nice to have in the sense we can say we're a part of that? But fundamentally, let's strip it back and say, what impact are we having as a firm by being involved in all these different initiatives? And you know what? If we need to strip those post-analysis, if our analysis points to, actually, it's great to be signed up to these things. However, to have a true meaningful impact, perhaps 17 of those 20 different initiatives are not required or 17 of those 24 initiatives, well, then drop them. And don't feel embarrassed about dropping them or walking away because fundamentally what you're trying to have is, a, is an impact. Uh, to be able to show that you've had that impact, you know, you're able to demonstrate it to your shareholders and to your partners, look, this is what we're doing from the firm in terms of integrating this agenda, returns, whatever it may be. So I think, Andy, there is, and I think it's going to, going to, only going to accelerate in this COVID world because firms will be looking at these different initiatives and saying, you know, a lot of them they may actually need to write uh, a commitment to check to, to be involved in. So we know there's going to be pressures under what firms and how they spend money. And we know that happens in any recession. But secondly, you know, a lot of the firms will be doing it through the lens of how are we actually having a real impact here and how are we measuring that impact? And so, you know, we're at the start of a, at the start of a process in terms of sustainable finance agenda. In any type of different agenda like this, there's going to be a plethora of new things emerge. There will be winners and losers. Uh, but I do have to take my hat off to the European Commission. They are going through this process in a very transparent way uh, with the first the high-level extra group on sustainable finance, now the technical extra group on sustainable finance, the consultation process around that, working with the parliament, working with the commission, working with the, you know, the different European investment bank, the ECB, We've now seen the second consultation come out. And I think a direct reaction, Andy, of your point about is there a lot going on is the commission and other jurisdictions around the world setting up the international platform for sustainable finance. And that platform is a real opportunity and the ambition at the heart of that platform is to ensure that while there may be differences at a regional level, 
at the minimum, there's coordination going on at the policy level uh, to, to try and get out something that, as I said, there may be regional differences, but at the core, everybody knows what they're trying to achieve. The network for green the financial system of the 60-plus central banks, look, that's what it's trying to achieve as well. The Sustainable Insurance Forum, 31 insurance regulators. So everybody recognizes that there needs to be more coordination in this space, and I really do feel that the policymakers are stepping up to the plate there. It will take a little bit longer to wash that out. Uh, and then on the flip side to co- companies, companies will be looking at what they're doing and what they're investing in, the time they're spending. And they'll be looking at that with a little bit more um, rootlessness in a positive way because they fundamentally want to have an impact on this agenda. Yeah, I mean, that's a very, I mean, it's a very fearless point that you make there. I mean, I, I've heard the same said by... Uh, many a firm about the, the, the plethora of initiatives I mean we as a jurisdiction as you know Guernsey we've obviously we've, we've decided you know it's a clear policy commitment to align to international standards we're not standards set ourselves and um, you know that's very much informs our, you know, our approach to providing regulated products that, have, that conform to international standards we published um, some PE principles last week they're basically green principles 101 for uh, private equity and one of the questions we got asked by the media was, are you, are you looking for people to sign up to them? We're like, no, no, we think, quite frankly, the sign for, you know, signalling by, you know, signing up to initiatives is, is being and gone, frankly. What we're here, we're, we're looking to do is to provide a basically um, a fairly straightforward, and dare I say, Janet and John guide to, to the issue. No, if I can just build on that point, look, look, there's a reason why the UN Environment Financial Centre for Sustainability has been so successful. It's because we've actually brought together a group of people and we're not trying to enforce standards on that group. We're actually sharing as a group what each centre is doing. We're, we're, we're looking at best practices. We're enabling that dialogue to happen across jurisdictions that normally may not happen, where we can share in an accelerated fashion what people are doing and get it to market within those different financial centres. And it, it does offer that safe space for people to come in and be very blunt about what they're doing, uh, what the challenges they have as well, where they see the opportunities. And financial centres, as you know, Andy, that normally will be competitors. You've been at the UN Financial Centers for Sustainability meetings. There is a lot of openness. And people are saying, this is a challenge I'm having right now uh, at a jurisdiction. Can anybody here assist? Have you gone through something similar? And I think during the COVID period, this is where we've really come into our own because we were the first out to market with the paper around COVID-19 and the implications for global for the global sustainable finance agenda, which was really well received and the, and the kudos we got for that. The second paper we came out with very quickly afterwards was a paper called Nudging the System. We were the first to actually analyze, Andy, a lot of these different initiatives that are going on and who's doing what and why are they doing them. And we're now going deeper on that to allow people to make a really concrete decision about what they get involved in. So I'm very proud of what we've achieved over COVID, uh, over this period. And actually, you know, from our perspective, the agenda is going to get bigger and bolder. FC4S is going to get bigger and bolder, and we've got a key role to play in accelerating the accelerators within this agenda over the coming years. So for me, um, you know, this has been obviously a tragic period, uh, but as we discussed over the course of this call, you know, green stimulus, the ESG agenda, they're now going to be accelerated, and we have a role to play within that. Okay. Well, good point, Stephen. Well made. I mean, I'm just cognizant of, uh, of, of the, 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 how long we've been, you know, having a conversation now. And obviously, um, people will be listening to the podcast. I'll, I'll make sure that we, uh, that they, that those, well, not make sure, but for those who want to see those papers, go to the FC4S website and we'll, they'll be posted or they are posted on the Sustainable Finance Week uh, pages so that people can get to see those. 
I would just like to conclude, Stephen. I'm going to um, ask you now for, um, I'm hoping that you're going to sort of be drinking the Kool-Aid with me here on this one. In that 2020, there's been a silver lining to the crisis, which you know, is, is everything we appreciate. The, um, the CHG emissions has, has fallen by around 8% or the estimates it will be fallen by 8% by the IEA in 2020. You know, more than any year on record. Obviously, that's uh, you know, a silver lining to what has been a very um, you know, concerning period. But we're going to need to do that every year, between now and 2030, to hit the, the interim targets for 2030 to get to net zero by 2050. That's, a, that's, that's quite a monumental challenge. I mean, you know, but um, so setting aside that, are, are, you, are you confident that we can learn the lessons um, from COVID and you know, that, that we'll be on the right track in, in fighting climate change in, in, in the post-COVID area? Yeah, it's a good point, Andy, and it's it's been significant. You remember early in, in the pandemic, the 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 satellite images from different regions uh, that normally will be covered in, in in smog as a result of economic activity, the skies were actually clear. Uh, I remember a quote from the newspapers from a, a major city in Asia that said, "Actually, this is the first first time in nearly twenty years we've been able to see the stars at night." Yeah, so. There's a lot, as you point out, has happened because economic activity had to stop. Okay, so one would have wished that that not ha- that had not happened because we know the impact uh, as a result of the pandemic and how many people have died and and the loss to, to 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 society. But if you then try and build on that and say, well, from my perspective, what does it actually mean? And I go back, I go back, Andy, if I may, to the point I said earlier on that this is a physical shock. We know climate change is also going to be a physical shock. And maybe not enough people were experiencing climate change in their own backyards or experiencing it in a way that people were like, wow, we need to step back here. And obviously, a huge amount of lives have been lost as a result of climate change over previous years and decades. A lot of value was wiped out. You see how much insurance firms are paid out, infrastructure wiped out, jobs, livelihoods, and so on and so forth. But I do think, Andy, now that what has been this physical shock should make people stop and say, okay, well, what, what will climate look like in the next three years, five years, seven years, 10 years? Because this is how close we are now to, to these major changes happening. So from my perspective as an optimist, and the glass is always half full, um, from the calls I've been having in with, with, as the leaders in the capital markets at the policy regulatory and, and companies themselves over the last number of weeks, there is that recognition that we now need to go deeper on the system of finance, the ESG agenda, but recognizing that capital is only an enabler to allow others to do things. And so back to your point about the general economy, you know, we then de- we now need to support the actors and the you know manufacturing and, and, and so on and so forth in the economy that they need to make the transition as well to a low carbon economy in a much more accelerated fashion. And within that, at a societal level, Andy, there will also be winners and losers as well. Because the jobs that actually only a few years ago were very attractive may no longer be attractive going forward. And fundamentally, going back to all the discussion we talked about, Andy, and the ESG and integration of it, you're going to see more and more firms from retail banks, asset managers, and so on, and say, when they push for more disclosure from these firms that they invest in or they bank with, they may turn around and say, you're going to be a risk to me now going forward you could be a stranded asset in years to come, yeah? And so this is what Governor Carney talks about in terms of the shock 
to the financial system of climate change if we don't get on top of it. So my takeaway, Andy, is I think as a result of what we've gone through, this unfolding tragedy, which is still happening around us, and the changes that has happened is it's a real wake-up call to the... We all know what's happening in climate change. We all know what's coming in the pipeline. But unfortunately, this has been a kind of wow moment. We really need to get on top of this. Capital markets got a key role to play in that as enablers, um, but it has to be an all-of-society uh, challenge and all-of-society response because people will be left behind. And we're seeing that across the world now, that inequality. We can't just add to it. We need to get this just transition right. And I think we, you know, we can take the lessons from what we've just gone through to try and work on that. No, thank you very much, Stephen. All good points. Um, and it's been a fascinating uh, conversation with you this this, this past uh, sort of uh, hour. I think it, we've, we could have spent many, many hours uh, and spent the rest of the day waxing lyrically about the topic. Really appreciate your participation in this. Uh, like I said, Guernsey is very proud to be and a committee member of the UNSU4S. He does some great um, sterling work uh, throughout the, the previous few years. I'm sure more to come going forward. So it's been a real pleasure um, hearing uh, your in- insight and analysis there, Stephen. So thank you ever so much. Andy, thank you very much for including us. Obviously, I was in Guernsey for the first time last year and I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed my experience there with the, the group of leaders that you introduced me to. It's amazing to see in a few short years how much Guernsey has moved forward into a, a genuine leadership position in the area of sustainable finance. So look, uh, I can't be with you, uh, but I do wish you well for the week and thank you very much for including us uh, in today's uh, podcast, Andy. Thank you very much.